We're in Romans chapter 1. We are in verse number 3, but we're moving. This is a roller coaster from here on. I'll tell you what. You know, if the Apostle Paul were saved by his works, he would contradict everything he says in the book of Romans. He's certainly not saying that in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He is talking about grace and faith and God's goodness is how he's going to be saved. Same way we are. So we have to move forward. Um, I'm in here too deep. I'm sorry about that. So we'll just pick up the pace just a little bit. We read down to verse number 7. We stopped at verse number 3. I would have you hold in your mind, and I haven't said it, I don't think. This book, like all the books of the Bible, are ultimately about the God of heaven. And by God of heaven, I mean with specific reference to the Father and then the Son and the Spirit. But it really is all about the Father. This book is about how God, the Father, justifies people, how he declares them right in his sight. In fact, I was looking at the book this afternoon. Look there at, at how many times there's reference to God in this chapter. Verse number one, it's the gospel of God, which is an interesting way of saying it. We don't typically say it's the gospel of God, but Paul does. It's God's gospel. In fact, you know he's talking about the Father because he says in verse number three concerning his son. The gospel of God concerns his son. But there in verse number four, he was declared the son of God. Verse number seven, to all who beloved of God. Verse number eight, first I thank my God. Verse number nine, for God whom I serve. Verse 10, always in prayers may request perhaps not last by the will of God. Verse 16, the power of God. Verse 17, the righteousness of God. Verse 18, the wrath of God. Verse 19, because that which is known about God within them, for God made it evident. God knew. They knew God, verse 21. They did not glorify him as God, verse 21. Verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God. Verse 24, therefore God gave them over. 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. 26, for this reason God gave them over. I don't think I emphasize this enough. This is about God and how he justifies. And the reason I'm saying that is you can get into the book of Romans and you can begin to study all these doctrines and you can get really tied up in this doctrine, that doctrine, that doctrine. And people have their favorites, they have their views, and they get all crossed up with each other over what the book. The book is about God and about how he declares a person righteous before him. And we must not lose sight of that as we study this book. Let's jump in at verse number three. We'll get on with it. Verse number three, the gospel is what God means and what he uses to justify, verse 16 and verse 17. And then these first seven verses, Paul emphasizes that gospel. That gospel, as we talked about last week, verse number three, is concerning his son. His son, who was born of the descendant of David according to the flesh, you will want to read something like 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 14. You could also read Acts chapter 2, where that will be preached. The gospel concerns the Son of God. He is also the one the scriptures are about in verse number 2. Verse number 4, he was declared the Son of God with power. Jesus is that. He is the Son of man, and he's the Son of God. He was declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. He didn't become divine by the resurrection. That's when God, he is declared to be the Son of God. These two things are just those that happened in Christ's life. He was born of a woman, Galatians 4.4. 4. That was the descendant of David. 
according to the flesh, and he was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. According to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. In my reading, this Spirit here is not the Holy Spirit. It's Jesus' Spirit. He was declared or raised from the dead by his Spirit, his own power. In fact, that's what he says in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. According to the spirit of holiness, um, the pulpit commentary says, through this it was not possible for death to hold him because of his divine power, which was in himself, not merely through the agency of the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 1.14, the margin reads, his eternal spirit. And so Jesus had this power to raise himself, and he did through whom, verse number five, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about obedience of faith. The apostle Paul talks about himself in these early verses, but he keeps referencing God and Christ because they are the means and mechanisms of what he is doing. He goes and he first says he was called an apostle. How was that done? Verse number one, he was set apart for the gospel of God. He is called an apostle by God. It concerns Jesus, this gospel which he preaches. He says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, through Jesus Christ, through God, he was made an apostle. We talked about that last week. I'll not rehash. These apostles, though, were very specific with a very specific charge and work. Paul talks about his, and you can see that again by what he says next through whom we have received grace and apostleship. Why was Paul made an apostle? He says, to bring about obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. Paul was specifically chosen by God, called by God, to be the apostle to the Gentiles. To what end? To bring about the obedience of faith. Look again in Acts chapter 26. And listen to Jesus talk to Paul about his apostleship. Acts chapter 26 and verse number 15. Paul before Agrippa says, speaking with reference to the Lord, and, and I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you. For this purpose to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you. He says in verse 17, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. And why are you sending him to the Gentiles? Verse 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. That's what Paul is referencing. He was made an apostle to bring about obedience of faith among the Gentiles. That is the goal of the gospel. We talked about this, I think, earlier, but it's said here in Acts 1, Romans 1, 5. It's repeated in Romans 16. When he gets near the end of this book, he says these same things again, to bring about obedience of faith. 
Why preach the gospel? It's the only way that can happen. In this book, chapter 10 and verse 17, often quoted, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. If you don't have the word of God, you cannot have faith in God. You need the revelation. You have an entire Gentile world who, as we will read in verse 18 to 32, don't know God. They have been estranged from God. They gave God up. God gave them up. What do they have? When you're reading through the book of Acts and you get to Paul's missionary journeys, while he will often go into synagogues, he is most frequently among idolatry. Individuals who worship Diana, worship uh, statues and relics and stones and a host of other things, but they don't know God. They don't know Jesus. And Paul is often talking to those people and trying to bring about obedience of faith. You'll note the words obedience and faith. The gospel is something you obey. It's something you do. We can't feel it, experience, or anything like that. That's not the expectation. The expectation is to hear it and to learn it and to obey it. And Paul says that's what he is doing. Note the end of verse number five, for his name's sake. This is always the connection. It's for God's glory. It should never be lost on anyone trying to share the good news of Jesus Christ. It's not about you. And it's so tragic when we make it about us. I don't mean that we become prideful and arrogant. I suppose anything's possible. But more likely, we make it about us in the sense that we start saying, I can't. Well, why can't you? Well, I don't know enough. Well, I might make a mistake. Well, I'm nervous. Well, I'm scared. Well, I'm, 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 and by the time you're done, the gospel is all about you and your inabilities and your deficiencies. And the next thing you know, you and I are exceedingly quiet with the gospel. How are they to hear it if it's about us? How will they ever pry it out of us because I might make a mistake? You obeyed it, didn't you? Because if you obeyed the gospel, you surely know what you did. And is there somebody you cannot tell that? Coincidentally, let me just offer this. Why do you suppose that you suddenly have to know everything under the sun to share the good news that Jesus died for the sins of the world? And if you don't know everything under the sun, join the crowd. Because <laughs> nobody else does either. And what you can do is get some help. But this book and the whole book is to the glory of God. Look at chapter 11 and listen to this. Listen to what Paul says here. Paul does this sometimes. He just breaks out in praise after he talked about God, Christ, his goodness. Sometimes he just breaks out in praise and he says wonderful things like these in verse 33 of chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? 
verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever, amen. Who is this about? It's about God and it's about his glory. In fact, the scriptures here, the book of Romans, the gospel vindicates God. It says God is just. God is fair. If you've ever been asked by someone, well, why did God make the world? And if he knew these people were going to be lost, and if he knew they were going to eat of the tree, and all these people were going to be lost, well, why even make the world? Well, that's, that's, that's a fine question. I mean, God's not put off by questions, but please know this. There is an answer. And what is the answer for that? The gospel. Look there in chapter 3. Listen to Paul say as much. In chapter 3, which, by the way, will conclude very similar questions, or at least some questions, relative to God and his actions. Down in verse number 21, Paul says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. How are we justified? Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God is just. God is fair. God is righteous. How do you know? The gospel. Because the same God that made the world, the divine nature took on flesh and died for the world he made. That's God's vindication. That's God's justice. That's God's righteousness to declare his righteousness. Verse number five, among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. Verse number six, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. You'll see this word called frequently in the book. I think it's an important word. Paul was called. You can see that in verse number one. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called an apostle. On the one hand, Paul was called. In fact, we read it there in Acts chapter 26. The Lord appeared to him and said, For this reason I appeared unto you. He was invited by God in the proclamation of the gospel. Paul says he was called. Well, it's not the same sense, but saints are also called, verse number 6, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. You and I were not called to be apostles, but we were called into a relationship with God. Notice verse number 7, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so on the one hand, you are called. How are you called? By the gospel. Look at 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse number 14. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse number 14, Paul says there, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
the gospel is God's call to humanity, and he calls you by the gospel. What happens when you answer the call? You answer the call by obeying the gospel, then you become the called. Those who have answered the call are also called the called. Look there at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse number 2. Notice how Paul refers to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, uh, in Christ Jesus saints by calling those who are called saints. The church is the ecclesia of God. It is the called out. What calls you out of the world? The gospel does that. Having been called, this group now is the called of God. They have been set apart. They've been sanctified. They are the called of God. Well, Paul says he is writing, verse number 6, among whom also are the called of Jesus Christ to all who are beloved of God in Rome called saints. You will note that the Apostle Paul does not call them sinners. The brethren in Corinth are called saints. The brethren in Rome are called saints. Why are they called saints? Because they've been called out of the world by obeying the gospel. What do you call a person who has been called out of the world by the obedience to the gospel? You don't call them a sinner. They are not called sinners. They're called saints. It's not the same. The word called is important, used in the book frequently. Interestingly, Israel, Old Testament Israel, were called. In Acts chapter 7 and verse 38, they were called the church in the wilderness. Well, they had been called out of Egyptian bondage into a relationship with God. They all passed through the cloud and in the sea, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 5. They were baptized unto Moses. They are God's people, Exodus 19, 4 through 6. That is the called out, called out of Egyptian bondage. In a very similar way, we have been called out of sin, out of darkness, into the kingdom of God's dear Son. Those are the people to whom Paul is writing who are those people? Well, they're made up of Jews and Gentiles. And that's his point. You also who have been called. To whom? Verse number seven. To all who are, who are these people? They're beloved of God. They're called saints. And he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. These things are almost always connected. Sometimes the word mercy is added as a threefold grace, mercy, and peace. And th that is the result of the call. How did you get called? By God's grace. If there is no grace, then there is no call. If there is no call, then there is no salvation. It's always God's grace. Grace is always first. You and I are in sin and God gives his grace. And without the grace of God, we would just remain in sin with no hope in the world. But it's God's grace that invites. It's God's grace that calls grace to you. But more than that, what happens when God's grace is accepted through the obedience of the gospel? Peace is the result. Grace and peace. 
often grace, mercy, and peace. But why peace? Because after you obey the gospel, you were estranged from God. You were at enmity with God, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, and now you're a child of God. There's peace. Jesus is our peace. The result of this is tranquility, tranquility of mind, peace in the state of the rightness with God. It's the result of salvation from God through Jesus Christ. God gives his grace. You obey the gospel. You get peace, grace and peace. Let me pause here. I haven't allowed you to talk much. If you'd like, I'll listen. Anybody? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. That's absolutely right. All of this is about the gospel. I said last week the Apostle Paul setting forth some credentials as he sets it up. He is the right person to write this material, to preach the gospel. He was a recipient of it himself. He wants to pose it. He's obeyed it. He is the apostle to the Gentiles. He has the authority. He has all of the requisite things to preach and proclaim this good news and defend it. He's going to do all of that, and he enumerates all of this connection. Again, I'll move on, but note that the depth of the material in the first seven verses, I, I cannot overstate. There's so much there. Verse number, I know, I know, but bear with me, sorry. The gospel of God, verse number one, he promised it through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. You tell me how long could we talk about that? It concerns his son, born of the descendant of David according to the flesh, declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we've received grace, apostleship, to bring about obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called saints, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the introduction of the book in those first seven verses. And as Paul begins, you'll notice the first word of verse number eight is first. Having said all of that by way of introduction, which again, I think easily we could have spent more time on, but let's move on. First, and this is what brings us to the next section from about verse eight, I'm going to say down to verse number 17. Paul then built upon all of that he says, and he gets very personal here in this section, I counted the word, the letter I, or I with reference to Paul, 13 times from verse 8 to verse 17. He connects himself with the audience as being one and the same together in this gospel. Let's read it. We'll come back and talk about it. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness to how unceasingly I make mention of you always in my prayers, making requests, if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you, among you, each of us, by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far so that I may obtain some 
some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles, I am under obligation, both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Again, a very personal section of Scripture. Paul connects himself to the saints in Rome. He says he's longed to come to them. They're dear to him. He's often desired it. He wants what's good for them to impart some gift. He says their faith is spread and he's heard about it. Let's begin in verse number 8. God is unified. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. God and the Lord are always unified. There is one plan as you're reading it in the Bible, and there are three parts to the plan, or at least three portions of it, the Father's work, the Word, or the Christ's work, and then the Spirit's work. And that is a unified thread all the way through the Scripture. The mystery does not end at the book of John. It's oftentimes when you read the gospel or the gospel accounts, you read that Jesus died, he was buried, he rose, and then we get to his ascension. And for the most part, people stop the mystery of God. Now, they started it way back there in Genesis 3.15, Genesis 12, the promises to Abraham. They started right there. And so as they walk through the Bible, the Old Testament with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and Moses, and Joshua, and the prophets, and the judges, Eli, Samuel, the, the judges, and all the way, David, and then they go all the way through the prophets, and they get to Malachi, and they say, okay, the Old Testament's done, and God has really been working, and he's been preparing to bring the Christ, and that's right. Matthew 1, 1 opens with Jesus being, this is the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. It's exactly right. And then the Word begins to work. John the forerunner comes, and Jesus begins his ministry. And then they walk through the New Testament, they get to the point of Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and his ascension, and they say, okay, the mystery is done. God's work on earth is done. Christ died for the sins of the world. And they start reading Acts differently than they've read Genesis to John. And since the mystery is over, then they read Acts as if God's work relative to redemption is over, and therefore everything I read is of necessity for me. And every time I see the word I or we or us, it must be me too, because they've stopped the mystery. That would be the wrong way to read the New Testament, because the mystery is not done at the cross. The mystery is not done until we have this. Until we have the church matured, until we have the scriptures revealed, the mystery is not done. And so we're reading the mystery ongoing past the book of Acts. He's very much at work when we're reading those books. And Paul is a part of that. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ. When you're reading John 1930, I believe it is, Jesus says, it is finished. The Lord's talking about his work in this mystery. 
his portion of the work is finished. But the Spirit hasn't come. And so the Spirit has to come, and the Spirit will work. Acts 13, I believe, is verse number 2. The Holy Spirit says, Separate me, Paul and Barnabas, for the work which I have for them to do. The Holy Spirit has work for Paul and Barnabas to do. He says, Separate them. I have work for them. That's not the Father talking. That's not the Word talking. That's the Spirit talking. I have work for them to do. Paul says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ. This gospel about which we're reading has been a unified Godhead work. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is proclaimed throughout the whole world. Paul often thanked his brothers and sisters for their faith as it corresponded to his faith. Peter says it's a like precious faith. And what Paul often sees in his brethren are fellow laborers together in the faith. And what he says is, I thank God for that. I thank God for you because I, you, I've heard of your faith. In fact, he says, your faith is proclaimed. That tells us something about faith. It can be seen. It can be proclaimed. It can be spread. The spreading of the faith means people have the faith and other people know they have it because they're seeing the evidence of that faith spread. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians to those brethren. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse number 8, he says something similar to the brethren there. In verse number 8, he says, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we have with you and how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised up from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Their faith has spread, Paul says here to the brethren in Rome, it's been proclaimed throughout the whole world. James talks about faith and it being working and evidentiary and it being able to be seen. In fact, he says, if you have it without work, show it to me. If you can have faith without doing anything, James says, let me see that. He says, because if you do that, he says, the demons believe if that's all it is, the demons do that much and they're not going to be saved. In fact, the demons do more. James says, the demons believe and tremble. Trembling is an action. They at least do something. But if you tell James faith does nothing, James says, that's dead. Faith without works is dead, being alone. Paul says here the faith is spread, and it's, per, it's, it's appropriate that it's spread from Rome through the home world. After all, Rome seemingly was the world. All roads lead to Rome, and all roads lead out of Rome, and the travel and the ease and the language, the seas, the peace, the, all these things. It traveled through the whole world, Paul says. And Paul says with regards to these brethren, I thank God for you for that. Verse number 9, verse number 10, For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness how unceasingly I make mention of you. That thanks in verse number 8, I make mention of you. Paul is, verse number 10, always in my prayers make a request that perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. From verse 9 down to about verse number 13, Paul talks about his desire to come to them. And he will say, I often wanted to do it, but I was hindered or prevented. 
Let me just say this quickly about verse number nine. It's an important verse. And Paul does this great thing is he, he'll be talking along in one chapter and he'll seed in that chapter a later conversation. So he'll introduce it here, maybe even without much fanfare, he'll say something. And then later, he'll point back to it and say, this was important. And he does that here. Notice how he serves God. This is absolutely critical to the book. For God whom I serve, how? In my spirit. It's going to be critical to the book because later he's going to talk about flesh and spirit. Later he'll talk about carnal and works. And he'll use language over there that sometimes trips people up. But really all he's saying over there is what he says right here. The way to serve God is not outwardly in the flesh with your concept of works. It's inwardly in your spirit. Your heart is how we would say it. That's how Jesus says it. Love the Lord your God. How? Couldn't we say spirit? Isn't that what you're describing when you say love the God with all your heart, soul, mind, and you're saying do that from inwardly give him you, your spirit. Don't turn the relationship into an outward contract. Don't read 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8, I've earned my way to glory. Paul says, that's not how I serve the Lord. Now, that is how the Jews do it, and that's what he's going to discuss throughout the book. But he does this. He'll say something here, seemingly not. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. I'll give you another quick example. We'll come right back. We'll move on. Ephesians chapter 1. Now, I'm seeing some smiles like we're not moving. I'm thinking y'all need a—you're going to have whiplash we're going so fast here. <laughs> All right, maybe that was a little overkill. Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you heard the stewardship of God's grace which is given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote afore, King James, in few words. When did you write about the mystery? Go back to chapter 1. It was slightly introduced back in chapter 1. He says, I wrote about it in a few words just a little while ago. Well, he did. But if you will read chapter 1, you might slide right by it. It's down there in verse number 7, beginning. He says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intentions which he purposed in him. Well, that's all. That's all he's going to say here. He made known unto us the mystery. But over in chapter 3, he says, now, I wrote about that. He does this. He'll, he'll plant something here. It'll become critical later. He is doing that in verse number 9. I assure you, it's going to be critical to the book. How do you serve God? Paul says, I serve God in my spirit. In the gospel of his son is my witness how unceasingly I make mention of you. Paul is very connected to the churches and to the congregations and to the brethren. There is certainly something to be learned there about the intimacy which with he talks to brethren. He doesn't mind saying, I long for you. 
I think about you. I have you on my mind, in my thoughts, in my heart. I desire to see you. I want to be there with you. There are some people in the Lord's church who desperately want to get away from the Lord's church. It's terribly sad. Not Paul. I want to get closer to you, brethren. In fact, notice again, he says, I make mention of you unceasingly in verse 9. And then he says, always, as if always and unceasingly are not the same. Listen, I unceasingly make mention of you always in my prayers. This would have been great news for the brethren. Always in my prayers, making requests, if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some gift. When you're talking about the Apostle Paul and his life, Paul does, I think we've mentioned it, he wears several hats, and they're worth talking about. Uh, Paul is an apostle. Paul is a Christian. Paul is a Jew. All of these things is true. But Paul's apostleship, when you're reading about Paul, I think it's important to keep that in mind because he keeps it in mind. Paul is called in a way and for a ministry that you and I simply do not occupy. And he means that here, always in my prayers making requests, if perhaps now at last by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. Paul had wanted to see these brethren, but he had been uh, not allowed, maybe hindered. You and I could speculate and guess about what hindered him or why he was not. But the phrase, by the will of God, is important to understanding it. While Paul was an individual and while he could uh, live the life that he wanted to for the Lord, Paul says, by the will of God. It seems to suggest, at least to me, that Paul was not free completely to do any and everything, go any. God had things for Paul to do. And sometimes God said no. Uh, when he said we received the call from Macedonia, Paul wanted to go to Asia. No, you're not going there. Then a call from Macedonia came, and then we went there. Uh, while Paul is free in his life, he's much more like Moses in the Old Testament. If, God, if Moses is going to please God, once they meet at the bush, how is he going to do that? Why don't you tell me how many options Moses has after God says, go to Egypt? I saw a finger. There was only one finger up on it. One. Well, that's the options he has. If he will please God, he'll go to Egypt like God said. That's the nature of Paul's work. I long to see you. I wanted to come. Well, what if, if God said no, if God said go somewhere else, if God said do something else, well, then Paul was not free in that regard, the same way you and I are. It's the kind of language Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 when he says, Woe is me if I preach not the gospel. Roman, uh, 1 Corinthians 9, 15, down to verse number 17. Uh, verse number 11, uh, For I long to see you that I may impart to you some 
gift to you that you may be established. The word gift is used multiple ways in the New Testament. It is, and you will read phrases like the gift of God uh, in this very book, Romans um, 6.23, the wages of sin is death, the gift of God is eternal life. You'll read gift of the Spirit, Acts 2 and verse 38, other passages. You'll read the gift. You'll read good gifts. You will read God's unspeakable or unfathomable gift. Context is always determines meanings. And so you can find different meanings as it relates to those things. Sometimes it's salvation. Sometimes the miracles are involved in the question or in the word. Other times God's grace is a gift. Uh, the offering or the sacrifices. Jesus is the gift of God, his unspeakable gift. What gift here? Paul says in verse number 11, for I long to see you that I may impart, he explains, spiritual gift to you. That's a reference to the miraculous. They were spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 14, and a host of other passages. They were those given by God, by the Spirit. Paul says, I want to come and impart some of them to you. Seems clear they didn't have them, at least not in earnest. If they did, everything I read relative to the book of Romans agrees that an apostle didn't start this church. And if that's true, and since that's true, then there was no apostle there to lay hands on anybody and give them these gifts. Well, there is one now. And Paul says, I want to come and I want to give you these gifts. You read a church like Corinth where... They didn't come behind in any gift. They had gifts. In fact, they had them so much, Paul would say to them, how does it, every one of you has a psalm. Every one of you has a tongue. Every one of you. And he has to write to them about how to behave with those gifts. They are so plenteous there in 1 Corinthians in that church. The gifts were used to mature the church, Ephesians 4, 7 through 16. And you needed the gifts for all of those things relative to the church and its growth and maturation. It's 8 o'clock. That's verse number 13. Success has been ours. Any questions or comments you have about anything we discuss here tonight?